You're listening to The Road to Philanthropy with Gary Cohn, a podcast series on giving and working with nonprofits. This podcast is produced by Painted Rock Advisors, a consulting hub providing services to the philanthropic and nonprofit communities. We bring together your values and wealth with opportunities to do good work and make the world a better place. What can we do to help you? Contact us at paintedrockadvisors at gmail.com. Hi, this is Gary Cohn, and welcome to The Road to Philanthropy, our first podcast of the 2024 year. Today, our guest is Michael Thatcher, the president and CEO of Charity Navigator. Michael leads Charity Navigator in his efforts to make impactful philanthropy easier for all by increasing the breadth and depth of evaluation methodologies to facilitate ratings so that all donors and charities can have an equal platform. Prior to joining Charity Navigator, Michael spent more than 15 years with Microsoft, the last 10 of which he was in the public sector CTO, responsible for technology policy initiatives and engagements with the government and economic leaders in Asia, the Middle East, and Africa. Michael's eclectic background includes years at sea, conducting oceanic research with Woods Hole Oceanic Institution, composing music and dancing internationally as the co-founder and co-director of Dance Music Light. He is a graduate of Columbia University with a degree in music. His guiding mantra is follow your heart, use your head, make a difference. Hi, Michael. Welcome to The Road to Philanthropy. Gary, really glad to be here. Thank you. Well, you know, you've had an interesting life just getting to where you are now. I mean, the, the, the Beatles wrote this song, The Long and Winding Road. And I'm trying to figure out how a music major from Columbia University got to Microsoft overseas and then foundation world. So give me a little uh, rundown of that. Sure. And I, I often, I like the long winding road. I haven't thought of that one, but I, I tend to think of my life as a series of fortunate accidents. And... A lot of the choices I've made and the directions I've gone in have been due to people and some people that I met, interesting teachers in my life, I think, and in circumstance. I was born into a family where we had the first IBM PC in our house. My father was a mathematical modeler, was a PhD out of MIT. I learned how to code as a, as a teenager. I also cut the lawn, but I, I did sort of learned software programming and that became a means to, to do some of the other things I was interested in life. And so as a music major, I was using computers. I was doing some of the early electronic music work. I wanted to write music. I was a terrible pianist when I figured out that the computer could actually play music for me better than I could ever learn the piano in the time span that I needed to learn the piano. I went to the, so it's been. But so data, computers has always been part of it, as well as a fascination with the world and a fascination with the problems of the world and wanting to make a difference to somehow improve things for people. Very good. Very good. And what, where'd you grow up? What part of uh, the country, if it was our country here? I grew up primarily in the Northeast, sort of Long Island, then Rockland County, I was originally born down in Venezuela. My parents were living down there for about a decade. And then we came back to the U.S. in the, in the sixties for my dad to go back to, he went, he went back to school. So moved to Boston for a while while he was working on his PhD and then uh, ended up in New York. And that's also why I ended up at Columbia University because New York was, was home and where I wanted to be. So in, in the music world, let me touch that for a minute. You, you were obviously a, a voice uh, person because uh, you're in choirs. 
uh, and you tried piano. Other instruments you played or not? Classical guitar. And that was guitar was really my instrument. And and I had been really, I wanted to become, you know, a classical guitarist and then also write music. And what I realized was that it's, it's one or the other a lot of times. And so I still play guitar. I still occasionally create, but it's, I was more, you know, and singing definitely. I think one of the high of being at Columbia was I got to sing Bernstein's mass at Alice Tully Hall in Lincoln Center. And one of the, what I didn't even know, because I was a kid, but that was one of the earlier productions of that mass. And it's such a gorgeous piece of music and so fun to sing. Well, I'm kind of a, a, a music fan, though I did play in high school, through high school, but I played violin and mm. uh, I was in the jazz band as the string section and other things, but I'm kind of into classical rock and jazz. So it's kind of a mixture of things. But in any event, you seem to, to get into the nonprofit kind of volunteer mode for a while. How did you uh, get involved in volunteer activities? Well, I started, so the... When I was a music major, I was also, I was, I was writing music, I was dancing, and my wife was a dancer, and we created a company together. So actually, the first real job I had in my 20s was running out of 501c3 nonprofit, and it was a dance company called Dance Music Light, and we produced work, did all the, everything that it takes to run a nonprofit, struggled, and then after 10 years, you know, let, let it go. But that's, so I was very much involved in the nonprofit world, sort of from the get-go. How did you transition to becoming the head of Charity Navigator? What was that road? A couple of different things. In other words, there was the move to Seattle. There was the joining Microsoft. And then I was in my, I was at Microsoft for a little over 15 years. The first five, I was working at the headquarters more typical engineering development work on the Windows team. And then I moved into more of a policy-focused team looking at standards engagement, interoperability, and how Microsoft was engaging with the free and open source software community at the time. And that took me overseas. I ended up being the chief technology officer for Microsoft in their public sector vertical, looking after Middle East and Africa, and then after that, Asia. A lot of our work was interfacing with the nonprofit sector or the NGOs in those countries, doing a lot of development work, as well as social and economic empowerment initiatives with technology as the lever for change. A big part of my work as a regional lead was articulating the value that we were bringing to Microsoft and then respectively to the governments and the countries that Microsoft was working in. And so I got very interested in measurement. It was a way of, it was also not only interested, but it was survival, right? Because the team I was leading, we were working on multi-year horizons. You know, social change doesn't happen in a quarter and you have quarterly accountability. You have to articulate how what we're doing right now is really going to pay for itself in, you know, three to five years. Right. So I got very interested in measurement. The, the other thing that happened in my life, and this was, you know, I realize you've, you, we have a shared experience here, but. In 2011, my wife got sick and in 2013, she passed away and we were living in Singapore at the time. And it, that was a, it was a pretty big reset for me. And I realized that I couldn't, I didn't really want to be doing what I was doing anymore. And I wanted to be focused just fully on 
social impact and where I could make the most difference with my time. The fact that I found Charity Navigator or Charity Navigator found me was, I think, again, one of those fortunate accidents because I had joined the board of a nonprofit called Keystone Accountability, which was looking at beneficiary or constituent voice as a means of actually understanding if the nonprofit was, was making a difference. So simple scenario, you're, 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 you're aiding refugees, you're providing them blankets. You can tell the donors, I gave out 10,000 blankets. But when you ask the refugees, were you warm last night? Isn't that a more interesting answer? Because if they're still freezing, then something's not right in the, in the actual delivery of the program. And so right. anyway, so I, from that, the man running, David Bonbright, who was running Keystone Accountability, knew my predecessor at Charity Navigator. There was a parting of ways. There was an opportunity. He said, hey, you want to go back? You want to do something different? Why not, you know, reach out to Charity Navigator? So I did. And that was... There it is. As I said to my daughter, when she entered college in 2010, it's been that long ago now. Wow. I said, the most important thing you can learn in college is public speaking and how to network the right way. Because you may know a lot of knowledge, you may be the smartest you can be, but if you can't meet people and coordinate that relationship, that's what life's based on is those relationships. And uh, you really kind of explain that and how you got to Charity Navigator. That's perfect. So there are two big rating agencies in the nonprofit sector, Charity Nav Navigator and the other one, GuideStar. I'll, I'll mention mm -hmm. their name. So tell us about Charity Navigator and, and what you guys do, and we'll kind of go from there. Sure. So I think the, I'll start by, you know, Charity Navigator is, it's a, we're a free resource for donors. And I think one of them, we live to make impactful giving easier for everyone. And everyone is really everyone. And so we're doing this, we're trying to democratize philanthropy. So philanthropy doesn't, you don't need $5 million, you need $5 maybe, and you can actually make a difference. And so what we're trying to do is provide the best information on the most organizations to the average American donor or beyond, you know, it's not just the U.S. that uses Charity Navigator, but it is predominantly U.S. And we do that through ratings. So we do evaluations of the nonprofits. We have alerts, which are when something inappropriate or there's a perception of inappropriate behavior that happens at a nonprofit. We also let donors know this has happened. The attorney general of some state is investigating this organization, you know, donor be advised. We also have a giving feature so that you can actually facilitate the transaction directly from our website. We don't charge for this. The only fees that the donor pays are whatever the credit card fees are. We also provide lists. So when something topical happens in the world, we'll, we'll generate a list of highly rated organizations that are focused on addressing that particular issue. We also have lists which are sort of best of charities within sort of predefined areas, global poverty, environment, things like that. And so it's, it's essentially just a free website. Today we're rating 219,000 charities across four different areas. So we're looking at impact and results. We're looking at leadership and adaptability, culture and community, and then accountability and finance. Hi, this is Gary Cohn from Painted Rock Advisors and the Road to Philanthropy. We're excited to announce our new program for 2024. 
the 21st Century Leadership Symposium. This one-year program is designed for leaders of nonprofit organizations, those in the position of executive director, executive management, or development director, who are at the top of their nonprofit institutions. The first cohort of the program will begin in April 2024 in Los Angeles and May 2024 online. Please take a look at our program and curriculum that can be found at 21stCenturyLeadershipSymposium.com. That's 21stCenturyLeadershipSymposium.com. We look forward to working with you as we look to help you maintain and improve your nonprofit journey. Thank you. What, what do you think are, is the biggest challenge for nonprofit leaders that are running their organizations today in a post-COVID world? I would say there are two challenges. One is that there, there has been a decline in giving over the last year. So one of the, there's um, a waning in giving. There's less, for example, we're seeing less traffic on our website, which means people are coming to us less, they're giving less. There's about a 10 to 10 to 20% decline in giving from individual donors. There's also combined with that, there are less American households that are giving than ever before. So we're having a decline in the number of donors. The, um, the, the actual dollar amounts going up, which yes. is but the numbers going down, but the number of people is going down. And I think that's a systemic issue, which I find really troubling because as a nation, if that continues by, I think someone's done the, the projection, but by 2040, 2044, I think there will be no philanthropy in the United States. Now that would be, that would be a sad, sad state of affairs. So I think that is something that's preoccupying the minds of most nonprofit CEOs. I the other and is, and I think we're all, we all struggle with this is how do we articulate the impact of our work? And how do we do that in a way that's relatively um, easy for, for folks to understand and, and also doesn't cost a fortune? Because it's, you know, doing these longitudinal studies over multiple years, hiring, you know, an M&E agency, that can be really expensive. And so how do, how, do we, how do we reduce the costs of evaluating, you know, articulating our impact and then continuing to deliver and improve on, our, on whatever it is that we do as a nonprofit? Well, I think this, it's interesting you say that because I want to say it was only 10 years ago, but it probably was longer than that, that we started discussing outcomes, you know, mm -hmm. talking about, you know, how is it, you have all these programs you're running as a nonprofit, you're spending this money in your budget for these different programs, which ones are being productive, which ones are not. And that's, that's a new concept for most nonprofits. But yeah. And I mean, then to sort of call things as they are, I mean, Charity Navigator really focused primarily on financial ratios in the first, you know, 10, 15 years of our existence. And that, that's unfortunately like overhead ratios, they're easy to understand, but they don't necessarily articulate the impact or the outcomes that the organization's producing. It just tells you where the money got spent. Right. It does tell you what, what the money accomplished. And so, and this was, you know, one of the things that attracted me to Charity Navigator was to be able to work on how do we actually solve for outcomes and provide a rating at scale that is helping people actually understand, oh, my dollars, you know, $10 actually led to this many meals or this, you know, this, this many fed people, right? More if we're thinking about it in an, out, in an outcomes uh, frame. So it's the other issue is that outcomes are harder to articulate. 
Um, and depending on the area of social intervention, really hard. Take something like advocacy and trying to, you know, policy change. That's, that's hard to, you know, many years of work leading to uncertainty. Yeah, and how do you measure that and, 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 and tell a story? I think one of the challenges a lot of nonprofits have is, I think articulating the story is that, but it, it's actually telling their story. Their websites are not interactive in any way. I think one of the things I worked for the Technion, the Israeli university for a lot of years, raising money for researchers and professors and things like that. And one of the great things we had, because obviously the university was way, way far away. You couldn't, it was like you being at Stanford and you bring the donor right to the, to the professor. But having little short three to five minute videos of someone talking about their work and where they started and where they ended up was very productive in the fundraising scheme of things from that. Charity Navigator just kind of overhauled their rating system a little while back. And I know you have four basic tenets of, of how you rate people. Can you talk about that a little bit now? Sure. And I think that was the, what, what we're one thing to differentiate with, you know, what Charity Navigator is doing is we're really trying to give you an overall snapshot of an organization's health. And that's a little bit different than doing an evaluation of its programs, right? Because the, the effectiveness or the impact of a nonprofit program is really important. And, we're, and we are looking at that in the impact and results part of our rating is looking at a cost per outcome analysis of, of a, of a specific intervention. And so that's very traditional, more in the M and E side, we're looking at counterfactuals, we're creating an algorithm per program service area. So something like, you know, carbon reduction through the planting of trees, that would be one area where we have, we have a, a PSA or a program service algorithm. And from that, we, we look at what is the impact of the intervention? what would happen if there had not been an intervention, so the counterfactual. And then we compare that to the academic research on these interventions. We get um, essentially a, a baseline of what the average cost would be. And then we compare the different organizations on how, how, they, are, how they are doing, whether they are effective or less effective. So that would be the score of the impact and results portion of the beacon. In terms of leadership and adaptability, these are looking at, do you have a strategic plan? Do you have, do you invest in your people and in your, and in growing your leadership? You know, just sort of pretty basic, but just sort of it, and it's narrative at this point. It's really having the nonprofit articulate how they lead their organization. And then also this was very much stimulated by COVID, but it's also what's your adaptability story to when the world changes around you? Because needless to say, COVID changed the world for all of us. And how leaders actually adapted to that was significant, had significant impact on their organization. Culture and community is another portion of the rating. And that is looking today, that's looking at two things. It's looking at internal equity practices. So there's a checklist of 14 internal equity practices. These are collected by GuideStar by Candid. And we're also looking at how organizations listen to the, the, their beneficiaries. And so there's a, a series of questions called how we listen. And it's essentially this idea of how do you listen to your constituents? How do you adapt your program service delivery based on that feedback? How is this, how does this affect your decision-making? So that's, those are the two elements of culture and community. I 
did leadership and adaptability impact on results? And then finally, there's um, accountability and finance. This looks at some basic financial measures of the nonprofits taken from the IRS Form 990. Mm-hmm. And, and it's also looking at governance structures. So do you have an independent board of directors? Do you, do you have a whistleblower policy? Do you have, you know, all the sort of just really just good, good corporate governance or nonprofit governance. And a lot of that is taken from the, the form 990 itself. Very good. A very good way of looking at things, a different way of looking at things, which is important. On the leadership side, I think one of the, there's two things or two issues I see in my consulting practice now. And that is, you touched on one before, the, the lack of grow, growing donors, donor base. And part of that is age related. A lot of nonprofits that are around for a while, their donor base is aging out and they're not reaching a younger donor base. How do you see that as a problem in, in the world and how do you have find solutions for that? I think this, you know, that what you're asking now is actually linked to something you were saying before about the use of technology within the nonprofit sector. We are woefully behind as a in terms of, you know, tech adoption for the most part. And I think the, that is tolerated by, let's say an older population. I think the younger, the younger populations are expecting fast moving, well-designed websites, well, well-designed engagements through the, through the tech interface. And so I think one of the ways that we're going to be able to actually keep the attention of younger generations is by meeting them where they are, which is within a tech environment. And so that does require that we, we shift our focus to that, because I think if you look at it, there's still a large amount of fundraising that's happening through physical mail and quite successfully. Right. And, but that's not really going to work. I don't think, you know, 10 years from now. I don't know if you know or have met Lisa Greer, who is a philanthropist out of LA who wrote a book, Philanthropy Revolution, a couple of years ago. I don't know her directly, but I know of the book. Yes. Yeah. Fascinating lady. And she tells a story that when her husband and her, they're moderate philanthropists, and then his company went public in the tech world and did very, very well. Now they were mega millionaires. And she called Cedar Sinai, the big hospital in LA, to make a donation in a field that related to her husband's health at one time. And it took her seven phone calls before they figured out who she was, you know? And we've all heard stories about that. And that's, that's a very interesting kind of dynamic. But she also talks about, you know, I make a $10,000 gift to a couple organizations a year, and I still get 28 emails, you know, between November 25th and December about making a gift. And I'm thinking, don't you know who I am? Take me off your list, <laughs> you know, or, or use your technology to exclude certain people, you know, from that. So it's a good point you make. And it's so easy to do that, right? Yes, it is. It is. Yes. For a $10,000 donor, you know, shame on you if you're not doing that, right? (laughs) Exactly. Especially don't want to treat them like everybody else. I mean, it's, you know, you can't be spamming folks. I mean, you have to really be cautious there. We thank our sponsor, Hot Dog Business Growth. Hot Dog Business Growth has over 40 years of practical experience. We've developed best practices for the execution of ideas, professional growth, constructive communication, employee relations, sales strategies, including compensation, pricing, marketing, and much more, such as CEO and leadership counseling, both in the for-profit and nonprofit sectors, customer service assessments and training, 
sales counseling for individuals, sales teams, sales management support, and pricing strategies. We focus on team synergy. Our leader, Joel Volk, has spent years building the type of team synergy that results in positive relationships and improved results. We have a team of 11 consultants working in the profit and nonprofit world. As Joel says, hot dog, it's a wonderful life. You can find us at hotdogbizgrowth.com. That's hotdogbizgrowth.com. So another issue that I, I look at in the nonprofit sector is, and you talked about leadership and, and management development, is the lack of uh, development of people and succession planning. Mm-hmm. How do you look at that when you judge and rate organizations? You know, it's probably not as much, probably not enough, I would say would be the answer to that, because I think what what we're looking for is that there's some form of investment in leadership development, right? So you're investing in your leaders and that means more than just uh, the CEO, right? Right. right. But a uh, specific, you know, do you have, you know, do you have a bench where you, you have your, you have a succession plan already built out and all of that? That's a level of granularity we haven't gotten to at this point. And, and I think, th- I think the answers would be wildly different depending on the organizations in terms of size and age and capabilities, but it's, it's, it is so important because you often have a very charismatic leader who, you know, suddenly decides to move on and what happens, right? Is there continuity? How do you actually manage this? It's a, it's a very rich question. And it's, it's the kind of question no one ever wants to talk about. Well, I think what's interesting, and you look at the comparison of, of that to uh, Major League Baseball, which I'm a big fan of, had I known that literally I played the bench, I was a utility player. I came in when the game was already over, you know, and whatever. Had I known I could perfect that and make millions of dollars in the majors by being on the bench, I would have worked harder. You know, I didn't know that, but that's very <laughs> true about, about developing people. Some. I was, I ran a synagogue for 17 years, the big synagogue in San Francisco. I was the executive director. And someone said, you know, what is your, your biggest or your greatest achievement at the synagogue? And I said, developing people. Mm. There must be a dozen executive directors or development directors around California that started with me at some entry level position and grew and, and became what they are today. And that's what I'm proud of, you know, to, to look back on that. Let me ask uh, one other question related to, to money. And then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about mentoring and, and, and things. I just had a heated discussion with an old longtime friend about uh, nonprofit compensation. It, it, she was complaining that the ASPCA CEO made a, a million dollars a year. And I recall when I was on the board of the American Red Cross, they also complained about how much the CEO was making there. And I said to her, She's the woman is running a $380 million a year business. And the, the normal guideline is you want overhead in a nonprofit to be, I don't know, 15 to 18% or whatever the number is that we're looking at today and not 50% or 60%, right? So she's earning 0.001. But why is that a lot of money? And I think that's a you know, combination of what's going on in the world but maybe you can address, you know, how, how you deal with that in a, in a rating system. So needless to say, you know, we, this is an area that I think is, it's misunderstood and all from, from all, all sides of the equation, because some, you know, 
salaries are not necessarily overhead. They may be overhead, but program, program staff are, that's a program expense. Right. Right. And, and I think that's, but nonprofits sometimes get it wrong. Donors sometimes get that wrong. There's misunderstanding around that. That's just in terms of what we call overhead. The other is, you know, and I think the, probably the loudest voice on this is Dan Pallotta, but it, in terms of pay people, pay people, pay, pay correct scale. The issue we have is that the nonprofit sector is, we are the safety net of this country. We are a capitalist country. We are not a socialist country. And we count on our nonprofit sector to really fill the gaps and to take care of our people. It's also a sector that has 10% of the workforce. And why should, we, why should nonprofit executives or even junior staff, why should they be paid less than they would be paid in the for-profit sector, right? There's this, and I think the answer to this was, is related to the word charity. Right? Because we talk about it as we talk about it as charity. We talk about it as giving, and and it's something that we are. There's a confusion around charitable work and social work, right? And so there's and we've muddied that, and so the lines aren't clear. But there's a perception that somehow nonprofit leaders or charity leaders should not be paid at the same rates that they would be paid if they were running a Fortune 500 country company, right? I mean, look at, you know, you've gave two great examples, ASPCA and the American Red Cross, huge organizations. I mean, the, the Red Cross is a billion dollar organization. And that's one of the hardest, most complex jobs that I could ever imagine. And if that job were existed in, you know, it'd be like the equivalent of something like GM or something like, you know, the complexity there is really big. And just look at the do a comparison to the, the CEO salaries between those two organizations. It's, there's something that doesn't seem right. Particularly, these are the people that are going in and saving lives after something, some disasters occur, right? So there's, I think that's, that's an issue that is going to be, it's got a long tail on it. And, yeah. and I, I, I don't know the solution, but I do think moving away from just thinking about overheads and then looking at the impact and the outcomes these organizations are generating is a step towards really seeing, oh, I'm, I'm happy to pay for that. They're actually making a difference in the world. Right. I think when, you know, when I ran the synagogue and I had a, I had a very large salary as an executive director, but we also divided up in budgeting, you know, some of my money salary went to programs, some went to fundraising, some went to, you know, management or whatever. I, I think that's one of the interesting, also the other aspect of this is that entry-level salaries are still lagging behind in the nonprofit sector. Uh, I yep. saw there's a job posting board in LA, uh, Dan Rothblatt of the Jewish Foundation voluntarily puts up a job posting board on a regular basis, daily, basically. And I, it was an entry-level job. They wanted five years experience, a master's degree, and they were paying $70,000. And I went, so I wrote them a note saying, I, I realize you're a nonprofit. I may work with nonprofits all the time. What are you thinking? <laughs> you know, who are you going to find? with a master's degree who wants to work for $70,000, you know, but. No, I know that go back to what we were talking about with technology, right? And a young engineer can get a starting salary in a tech firm. That's probably the equivalent of the CEO salary in the nonprofit they would want to go work in for a quarter of what they could get paid anywhere else. Right. 
why is our technology lagging in the nonprofit sector? We can't afford to pay the engineers, right? And so you're getting people that, so there's, you have to have really dedicated people that come across because they, they're doing it at a, at a loss to themselves and their families. And I think this is the part where I get, I get up on a soapbox every now and then, but you have young staff, they start having families. They want to put their kids through school just like everybody else. And they're, and they may not be able to stay in the sector if, if they, if they're actually wanting to, or they have to have, you know, it's, it's just, it's really hard the way the system's set up right now. One of the things I look at in evaluating nonprofits, when I work with, I have a, I have a half a dozen donor, I donor advisement. Most of my work is nonprofit consulting and, and obviously the podcast, but I look at what is the CEO making and what is the number two person in the organization making? What's the difference between A and B? Uh, and yep. then, then you think about what the other people are doing. And so you see a, a, a nonprofit where the CEO is making 600,000 and the next five people are 200,000 and less. And I'm thinking, okay, there, there's an under appreciation of their work because, you know, someone said, when I ran the Sunday, what's your job? And I said, my job is to make the rabbis look good. <laughs> you know, that was my job. Yeah. <laughs> so real quick, let me ask you a question about mentoring and mentors. You mentioned that briefly, we didn't touch upon it. How important were mentors in your career and in, in, in developing your life and your, your professions? So I would say mentors were really important to me, but they were, these tended to be informally uh, found. In other words, I don't know that I had a formal mentor. I've, I've tried, I've, Microsoft had a mentor program didn't really work for me. It was too, it was too structured, but I've found people that I gravitated to and then sort of became a mentee. And it, it was particularly important as a leader, also as a man, in other words, to find male role models to, to follow and, and learn from, that was very important to me. And then also, I think it's having worked with some great leaders. And particularly watching these leaders fail and how they, how they dealt with failure. And I always remember this was one of the strongest lessons I learned. I was at Microsoft. There was a woman who was running our, our team, our division, Windows management instrumentation. And I remember our, our product got cut from the, one of the Windows releases, which was devastating. And we, this was like two years worth of work and we were told you're done. And I remember the way she presented to us and just told us, and you could just see she was devastated, but the way that I learned so much about being honest and working with integrity and not sugarcoating and just sort of saying, Hey, this is what's happened. We're out. Right. And, you know, you've all got, you've, you know, and, and, and so I think, I think mentors are critical because our direct managers are, are going to be guiding us with other, other, um, other objectives than just, um, our own, you know, they're, they're, they have, there's a conflict in that, in the direct manager relationship. So the mentor has no, all they do is they're there just for you and to help you. And, and it's a different than trying to make sure that you're also growing and producing and all of that, that comes into sometimes in the management line. Very true. Well, one of the things I learned, you know, working for an Israeli university and, and there was a book that came out 10 years ago and I, my mind's not remembering the name of it offhand, but it was about why Israeli technology companies are growing so well and doing so well versus other companies in the world. And part of that reasoning is they're not afraid to fail. Yeah. And when they fail, they look at the reasons behind the mistakes or the failures and then how to learn from that and move forward. 
Where in America, and I go back, I had a, cor- I had a corporate life before nonprofit, 15 years in the banking world. And if you made a bad lo- a loan went bad, you did a postmortem to understand what went wrong. How did you not notice the red flags or whatever it might be? But there are other managers that would yell at you and scream at you like, what the hell were you doing? You know, it's like, that's not how you learn. That's how you get scared to make a decision, you know, from that. Let me wrap up with two final questions. One, is there anything about Charity Navigator that I didn't ask you that you want my audience to know or, or to, to learn about? I think the, one of the things about Charity Navigator is it's, you know, we're, we're trying to, what you care about is what you care about. And once you know what that is, you know, you can use Charity Navigator as a tool to refine that down to a couple of organizations that you might want to support. And I think we're trying to make it easier and easier for you to actually see the difference that those organizations are making and, and easier for you to find them. And so we're, it's, it's a process. I also think this is more of, if I could shift one thing, it's the idea of think more about investing in a better future versus giving to, you know, shift giving to investing and then track your investments in the same way you would in the, in the financial markets, track your social investments and look for that social return. Very good. And as a major gift officer for many years, obviously for the Technion and then for the Jewish agency and Alzheimer's, I always talked in words of what your investment's going to mean to the organization and the whatever. That's how I always learn to, to talk about it. And, and it's very successful. And the last question, and I have one thing offline I want to ask you, but on the online now, what do you do in your free time for fun besides running the organization? <laughs> so I'm, I'm an avid and passionate surfer. Oh, wow. Okay. I live, I live right now out at Montauk Point, which is the east end of Long Island. And I try and surf every day before work if I can all year round and anything related to the ocean. That's where I, I like to spend my time. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, growing up in California, I was more into body surfing, not real surfing, but the senior rabbi or the incoming senior rabbi up in San Francisco at the big synagogue surfed all his life. Oh, I love that. There's a rabbi in New York who was a colleague of his that grew up in Hawaii and surfed all his life. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a good thing. Well, thank you so much for being part of the show. This was really fascinating. I hope my listeners really learned a lot. And if they want to reach out to Charity Navigator, what's the website address? It's uh, charitynavigator.org. Terrific. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gary. This was great. Thank you for listening. We want to stay connected with you. Be sure to stay connected with our community by giving a like to our Facebook page and following our Instagram at paintedrock underscore advisors. Our podcast is available on all of your favorite platforms. We'll see you at our next release. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.